0: Welcome to Gray Matter. I'm Michael Krasny, and it's a pleasure to be with you once again on Gray Matter, the podcast which features in-depth interviews with leading newsmakers, scholars, authors, and intellectuals in conversation with me, retired host for 28 consecutive years of the award-winning forum program based in San Francisco. Also, it was heard weekdays on Sirius via national public radio. I'm also a professor emeritus of literature and author of a number of best-selling books, and my guest this week is a leading world expert on the world. Richard Haas, who, since 2003, has been president of the Council on Foreign Relations. He also served as director of policy planning for the U.S. State Department and as an advisor to President Bush I and Secretary of State General Colin Powell. His most recent book is The World, a brief introduction, and he's also the author of a number of other books, including The World in Disarray and Foreign Policy Begins at Home. I'm delighted to welcome Richard Haas to this week's edition of Gray Matter.
1: It's good to be with you, even though I assume gray matter refers not simply to what we have inside our skulls, but what we have on top of our skulls.
0: You're absolutely correct, uh, except for the fact that it also refers to the ambiguity of non-polarization and the name of, if you watch Breaking Bad, the name of the company that the uh, leading character started out with and sold his interest for $5,000 to lose the billions that were there for him. So there's a lot of multiple meanings to gray matter. Uh, I want to begin, though, by posing a question to you that has been uh, invading my consciousness when I think about geopolitics or world affairs. Uh, and I know a few people who know them, uh, know those areas as well as you do. Uh, and uh, the question has to do with what the biggest peril is now that faces us globally. Uh, and I'm talking about sovereign states primarily because the world has really shifted with Ukraine and Russia. And it shifted in ways that were never anticipated, Uh, and particularly with respect to nuclear weaponry. So I want to go right to this in terms of what your assessment is. Uh, It used to be, well, we talked about the Middle East as the most volatile area or the area with the most uh, combustible or uh, dangerous peril to it. India, Pakistan may be in second place, but now Russia, with all the nuclear saber rattling, seems to be as Mitt Romney once said, uh, maybe in the lead again. And I wonder what your thoughts are on this. Where do we see right now the most peril?
1: Well, the first way I'd answer that, Michael, is that there's a long list. Uh, And you've got the revival of geopolitics, Russia, definitely. You've got a, an unconstrained Vladimir Putin, who, if he wanted to use nuclear weapons, uh, could, would probably, and could probably do it. He's, uh, undone the institutions of Russia. So there's there's that. You've got China, which is an uh, increasingly confrontational and capable uh, country uh, out there. You've got the Irans. You've got the North Korea. So you've got any number of geopolitical actors in the queue. Secondly, you've got global perils. And I would put climate change first, but we've just come out of a pandemic that killed close to 20 million people worldwide. And then third, and perhaps most important, this part may surprise you. I would actually list the greatest peril facing the United States, not Russia, not China, not climate change, not uh, COVID, but what's going on inside the United States. I think that the greatest peril to the functioning of this country are challenges to our democracy and challenges to the ability of our government to, to govern and to act. And the reason I think that's so basic is if we can't get that right, if we are uh, increasingly divided or literally at war with ourselves here at home, there's no way on God's green earth we're going to be able to deal effectively or successfully with Russia or China or climate change or anything else. But if we do get it more right than wrong here at home, then at least we have a chance to deal successfully with these external threats.
0: What does that mean getting it right here at home?
1: It means having a a government that can can function. It means not having wide-scale or large-scale uh domestic politically inspired uh violence. It means the ability to be somewhat reliable and predictable because the gap uh, between representatives of various pa- parties is is limited. So the rest of the world learns uh, that our friends can de- depend on us for their security and our foes have to respect
0: us. Well, you know, I'm also concerned about the fact, though, that we're in a nuclear phase that we've never been in before. Um, the fact is uh, that Bill Clinton got uh, Ukraine to pretty much remove their nuclear weapons and some might argue that that meant uh, no longer mutual assured destruction, and Putin gave him more carte blanche to do what he's done. But I'm also concerned about the fact that you've got the Saudis now uh, pretty much in a kind of proxy war, uh, almost in Yemen and other places with Iran, maybe wanting nuclear weapons, other countries wanting nuclear weapons, Iran, obviously, but uh, mm-hmm. and uh, Kim Jong-un and Pyongyang advancing their nuclear weaponry. Uh, in other words... <laughs> I'm concerned like you are about the United States, but we have all this volatility. And we also have China looking at Putin and uh, saying, in effect, maybe we can do the same with Taiwan. Uh,
1: Maybe they are. And I think you're right to put your finger on the fact or the likelihood that we may well be entering what you would call a a new nuclear age. Uh, I think you you mentioned Ukraine giving up its nuclear weapons. It's been invited twice, invaded twice since then. You've got nine countries in the world that have nuclear weapons. A tenth Iran would would like to. Uh, China may well take from the Ukraine crisis that the growth of its own nuclear arsenal, something, by the way, they've accelerated, is desirable because it would introduce caution into how the United States might respond to a Taiwan crisis, just as uh, it's introduced caution into how the United States has responded to Russian aggression and in Ukraine. And it's quite possible that if the United States becomes less reliable or even more unreliable, that countries around North Korea and China will say, hey, we need our own nuclear weapons. And the same would hold, as you suggest, for countries in the neighborhood of of Iran. So we could be very much on the brink. Of a new nuclear age, where we go from nine countries with nuclear weapons to 15 or so countries with nuclear weapons, and then you've got the danger of nuclear use, plus all the dangers of the transition from where we are now to to then. So I think it's that's a you know that's suddenly become a legitimate and real concern.
0: That's well, certainly a real concern when you simply look at things, uh, even objectively, if that's possible. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are. As an old hand that the, uh, I shouldn't use that phrasing, Um, as a veteran of, um, well, we talked about the grayness earlier, Uh, as a veteran of diplomacy and certainly trying to make the world a safer place, uh, diplomacy sanctions, uh, some might say limited efficacy, the same with uh, maybe freezing assets. What can we do to bring about more cooperation, especially with the weak United Nations? What can we do, in your judgment, in other words, to bring greater trust and maybe even peace.
1: That's way too ambitious for me. Uh, I would, you know, I would define goals right now as much more modest, but still difficult. In the case of Russia, I'm not looking for peace or cooperation. I'm looking for Russia to stop invading its neighbors. Uh, and I think there, the best way to do it is through uh, deterrence or defense, military capability, and then far more. Uh, significant sanctions than we now have, I'm not wild uh, in favor of the uh, central bank assets being frozen. I think that's a dangerous step. But I do think that Europe needs to do much more to reduce its dependency on Russian natural gas. Right now, Russia is funding its war uh, all too uh, comfortably. So, you know, I think there's a role for sanctions. I think sanctions alone can't do it. That's why you need, among other things, military force. But more broadly with Russia, I don't see much upside under this leadership. Uh, Under China, I think it's slightly more nuanced. But again, Xi Jinping's China is very different than previous China, say, of Deng Xiaoping. This is a far more capable, far more assertive or even aggressive uh, China. So again, I think the upside of cooperation is extraordinarily modest right now. I think foreign policy for the immediate future is more about what we can avoid than what we can bring about.
0: Talking to Richard Haas, who is head of the Council on foreign relations, what would you suggest uh, needs to be done here other than having free fair and perhaps uh, if it's possible uh, completely transparent elections
1: here in the United States?
0: Yeah, since you mentioned this is maybe the greatest threat.
1: Well, that would be it. I mean fair elections are about two things. Uh, one is in the run up to the elections and you know through election day, that you have fair competition for who can run, have access to media and the rest, and then obviously that voters who want to vote and are eligible to vote can vote. Uh, that, you know, there's that part. And then afterwards you've got to have an accurate counting of the uh, the ballots. And I think there's questions on both ends uh, in the the backdrop to elections, whether all those who want to vote uh, have a chance to vote, that we have reasonable uh opportunities to vote in place uh, i'd like to bring about a country but this is not a matter of law it's a matter of culture and behavior where more americans did vote you know, elect took, took advantage of the opera uh, of the opportunity and then again as we've seen with the january 6 hearings there's got to be uh, careful counting of the uh ballots americans can't lose faith in the integrity of the of the uh, ballot box you know beyond that there's much bigger questions about the working of our political system and so forth and you know there's all sorts of potential reforms but i think a lot of those are probably going to be beyond reach simply because the there's not a consensus on doing these things and almost every reform you or i could man could think of would be seen accurately and not as advantaging one party or one individual rather than and disadvantaging others and not surprisingly then it's very hard to get agreement on on implementing reform
0: never been as polarized, though. And we have the extremes on the left and the right, uh, perhaps unprecedented.
1: I agree. And this is the most divided I've seen in the country. Uh, you know, I read a bit of history, as do you, uh, since the mid-19th century. We know what it led to then. Uh, I'm not predicting a second civil war, though I think the idea of widespread political violence has become all too imaginable. We narrowly escaped it after This past election in in November 2020, January 6th, was a taste of what we could experience. And I can imagine contested elections in the future, particularly if you had local officials who clearly tilted the uh, playing field in favor of this or that candidate or party, and others would feel they had been disenfranchised and would take to the the streets. Uh, Look, that's the danger in any democracy. If people lose faith in the system, as being a place of fairness and opportunity, they will go outside the system. And we have got to be mindful. I think to me, Michael, the real lesson of the last few years is that we've got to be cautious with our assumptions, things that you and I never talked about in the past in all the years we've been having conversations, things that we never thought we'd have to worry about when we got up in the morning. Now we have to worry about. And one of them is we can't take American democracy for granted. I'll be, I'm not just... Thinking about it, I'm writing about it. My next book, so we can talk about it in six months. My next book, which comes out in January, you know, it goes back to your first question. What's the biggest peril facing the United States? I wrote, I've wrote, i written a book uh, about American democracy and how it's gotten to the point it has and what do we need to do to, to protect it and preserve it and reform it. And, and I've written about that, even though I'm a foreign policy national security guy, because I'm, I'm deeply worried about it.
0: We've got questions already coming in for you uh, in this uh, new podcast uh, of ours, Gray Matter. We have questions that we're going to be interspersing throughout our conversation. Uh, This is from uh, someone in Cape Town, uh, South Africa, named Hasmuk, who wants to know, says the African Union chair met Putin on Friday concerning food shortage in Africa worsened by Russia blocking Ukraine exports of grain. Africa Mm -hmm. is mostly marginalized in global affairs. Your thoughts?
1: couple of thoughts. Uh, Africa doesn't have a large voice in, in, in international affairs. Uh, the African Union is modestly helpful dealing with certain governance issues, economic issues in, in, in Africa, but not more than that. The two most powerful countries in Africa, Nigeria, and South Africa, don't have more than a, a, a regional footprint. I think the good news about Africa is it unlike Europe or the Middle East or Asia, it's not overwhelmed by interstate problems, problems be, between countries. The real issues are internal and governance. And I think the biggest issue for Africa over the next 20, 30, 40 years is going to be demography. It's the one part of the world that's going to, that's going to experience fast-growing demography. Africa is going to have an extra billion people over the next half century. And the question is, will there be you know, the... The educational opportunity, the jobs, uh, the the medical systems, and the rest to to give them um, the the lives they need and deserve. And in the immediate, you know, question you know, side of the question dealing with the world food crisis. Yeah, a lot of the countries who are going to most experience pressures from food because of what Russia has done will be uh, in Africa just as an aside, Africa is also going to experience the lion's share of near-term problems because of climate change. It's going to increase dramatically the number of internally displaced people and, and refugees. The real question is whether the the world can is willing and able to act to get Russians to lift the blockade on uh Ukraine's ports. Ukraine is you know, one of the principal shippers, exporters of uh, grain and foodstuffs to the world. My guess is not in terms of Putin allowing it to happen. He'd only be open to it happening if we if we lifted sanctions against Russia. We're not going to do that for for good reason. So the question is can one way or another you get more grain out of uh, Ukraine over land, say through Romania, and then they could ship it out? Or is the world willing and able to take uh, action, for example, as some have suggested? to escort merchant ships and to dare the Russians to shoot merchant ships carrying grain to the rest of the world. I don't know if we're going to be prepared to do that. I don't know how the Russians would react, but it may come to that before this war uh, is resolved.
0: And yet we're seeing uh, in Ethiopia and Somalia and Nigeria, and one also has to include, of course, Yemen and Egypt, um, terrible food shortages because of what's going on in Ukraine, aren't we?
1: Absolutely, we're seeing two things. We're seeing food shortages, and we're seeing price hikes. Uh, the price of food is going up uh, dramatically. So the potential for this triggering political instability, famine, social disruption is is great. Uh, uh, there's no evidence that Mr. Putin cares one iota about any of uh, uh, of this. I also think we've not been particularly effective. We, the United States, at rallying a lot of the world against Putin. I think we've talked way too much about democracy. We haven't talked enough about uh, order and about the need to prevent countries from invading their neighbors. We haven't talked enough about world food. So it's possible we could put more pressure on the uh, Russians. But again, uh, I don't hold out a lot of hope for that. So I think the real issue is whether there is the uh, willingness on the part of much of the world to come together. to to challenge the Russians over this. And it's dangerous if we do it. And quite honestly, it's dangerous if we don't do it. That's where we are.
0: Of course, some would argue that we're really in a kind of war with Russia right now using drones and cybersecurity and other kinds of things as opposed to conventional warfare. Uh, It's a different kind of war, but it certainly could be at least labeled or signified as, as as a kind of war. Where is the United Nations in all of this? Or, I mean, NATO has come together. The EU has come together in ways that nobody had anticipated. But sure. United Nations, I know, I realize Russia's on the Security Council, but it yeah. seems almost, uh, at this point, uh, academic at best for how the United Nations could be involved.
1: United Nations is irrelevant here. It's feckless. It's sidelined. Uh, anytime you have a great power with a veto, involved as a protagonist in a crisis. and if another great power disagrees with it, the UN won't be able to do anything. The UN was never meant to be a an institution or a vehicle to be used by one great power against another. It was meant to be a venue where they could talk. Obviously the United States, Great Britain and the United Kingdom and um, France are on one side, Russia to a large extent, China on the other. so the, the Security Council, the operational arm of the UN is hamstrung. It's it's gridlock, which is why we've taken things to to NATO, just as we did, by the way, in the wars in the former Yugoslavia when Russian, when Russia vetoed things there, uh and the UN then. We did an end run. You do a workaround. So you're still multilateral. You just don't do it through the through the UN. This is, you know, this is just a cold fact of of, of, of life that the UN is sidelined when the major powers disagree.
0: Question from uh, Kenneth, uh, who's joined us from Seattle. He wants to know: Is the cyber war with China more troublesome than that with Russia?
1: I don't think so. Uh, it's a good, at least not yet. It could be, but you know, with Russia, over the years, Russia has been more aggressive in in cyberspace uh, in terms of, for example, interfering with uh, American political processes. So the whole cyber issue has been less pronounced during the Ukraine crisis than I would have thought. And I'll be honest with you, Michael, I don't quite understand exactly what is going on or not going on and why. China's been active in cyberspace um, in such areas as espionage if you remember, it got inside the Office of Personnel Management in Washington, got access to millions of records in terms of the theft of intellectual property, something that China
0: has done. uh, They're stealing far more of that than any other country in the world from the United States.
1: Absolutely. And no, it's again, it's part of the argument about we let China into things like the World Trade Organization on the assumption that its behavior would moderate that it would play the game by the rules. And instead, they took advantage and exploited getting in and essentially cherry-picked those things they wanted from uh, being integrated into the uh, world. If there ever is a crisis over Taiwan, I would think cyber could and would play a significant role and that China would try to use cyber uh, offenses early on in order to blind uh, the United States, Taiwan, Japan, in order to interfere with our military uh, actions, and I expect we would uh, we would act in kind.
0: Again, we're talking with Richard Haas, head of the Council on Foreign Relations, and uh, let me thank uh, the listener from Seattle and here's another listener and someone who's with us this morning. Joe Phillips wants to know will the potential threat of economic downturn worldwide with the potential threat? How do you see that affecting the United sanctions against, United unified sanctions against Russia?
1: a good question, and I think it will make it more difficult. The sanctions have, among other things, contributed to inflation. We've seen it certainly in the energy sector. More broadly, it's yet another factor that's complicated supply chains and the movement of goods around the world. And you will have some pushback. Uh, We're already seeing it potentially in Europe. We could see it here. And so you have this combination of fatigue with the war, war fatigue, and then a certain degree of sanctions fatigue. And I, that worries me that we will lose some of our willingness or ability to to play the long game and Russia will will not. So I think that's a that's a legitimate concern that that caller expressed.
0: Let me ask you, though, about the world economy uh, since. Uh... That listener brought up economic downturn, and we've been talking about uh, problems with food. Inflation is higher here than it's been since the early 1980s, Uh, and for that matter, global prices and global disruption in food, oil, and so many goods uh, going on, proliferating, not to mention COVID-19, and uh, for that matter, global warming. Um, Are these patterns that can be turned around, particularly with what's going on in Ukraine, or at least can can the problems be diminished, reduced, to what degree?
1: My own view is things are going to get worse before they get somewhat worse uh, in terms of a recession. You know, the idea that we could manufacture a soft landing, that we could navigate through the Federal Reserve System and through the administration and Congress, a way of dampening down inflation without causing uh, a recession, you'd have to be a real optimist to believe we could we could pull that off and bring about a so-called soft landing. I think the most likely thing is we have a recession. That and if there's a recession here, as they used to say, if the United States sneezes, the rest of the world catches cold. Uh, I think we could also have a period of stagflation where you have low growth uh, coupled with uh, inflationary pressures. China, the growth numbers, the people that are now saying the real numbers are as low as they've been in decades. One, two, maybe at most three percent, probably, you know, but probably closer to one or one or two percent. So I, I actually think this is going to be a very difficult period for the world uh, economy there was tremendous optimism coming out of the pandemic that you would have a lot of what you might call catch up growth and i largely because we mismanaged uh the the economy here i think the united states and a lot of the rest of the world will pay something of a price for it and you know the war has obviously played into it by uh, increasing pressure on energy prices and other prices so you know commodities and other things that have to move by sea
0: Another question from South Africa. Outside of the reaction and mobilization against the Russian invasion, can you comment on Biden's foreign affairs foray to date? China, North Korea, Iran all seem to have relegated below the White House radar.
1: Well, I wouldn't say that. I think for most Americans, when they get up in the morning, it's true that foreign policy is not their priority. They're much more concerned about inflation, the price of gasoline, the price of food. They're much more concerned about uh, things like of crime in our cities, which has gone up. Uh, obviously, these mass killings uh, in certain places like Texas, tremendous concern about the southern uh, border. This week, you'll have all sorts of reactions to Supreme Court decisions, among other things, dealing with uh, abortion in the United States or access to uh, abortion. So it's true that foreign policy is not at the top of uh, the concerns of most uh, most uh, Americans. Uh, so I think the administration is reacting to that. That said, they've had an active foreign policy, whether you agree with it or not, whether it's not just Ukraine, but vis-a-vis China, um, vis-a-vis uh, Afghanistan, vis uh, you know, Iran. I think a lot of these areas I would take issue with. Uh, I disagreed with what we did and how we did it in Afghanistan. Uh, I, I wish our China policy had some other, shall we say, dimensions uh, to it. I don't think there's a strong case for trying to get back into the 2015 uh, JCPOA with with uh, with Iran, so we can, we can go around the world. So I you know, but I think the most noticeable upside about the administration's foreign policy has been the uh, reviving America's uh, alliances in Europe and Asia, and strengthening such you know certain new groupings like the Quad, the creation of AUKUS. Essentially, what we have in Europe is a revived NATO against uh, russia and what we have in the indo-pacific as it's now called we have uh, you know stronger we have stronger alliances and stronger strategic partnerships i think that's been the the biggest upside of the administration's foreign policy but again i'm as critical as anybody about afghanistan about the lack of tr- a trade policy uh and you know I, I question the wisdom of what we're doing vis-a-vis, uh, vis-a-vis iran
0: I I share your concern about Afghanistan. I mean, the exit was a disaster and a debacle. But I'm also interested in what you see ahead vis-a-vis Afghanistan. Um, There's um, some concern now, for example, about Taliban promises. They didn't quite come through with women the way they said they would. And I don't know about al-Qaeda either. I mean, are they going to bring al-Qaeda back? Uh, We certainly can't trust them when they say no more trust with respect to how they uh, comport themselves with women than how they comport themselves with uh, respect to what I'm talking about here. That is uh, the alliance that they've had in the past with Al Qaeda.
1: Socially, you're exactly right. In terms of the society they are bringing back and their pledges haven't amounted to much, if anything, in terms of groups like Al Qaeda, it's hard for me at times to know what's a question of will and what's a question of capability. And also when you speak about the Taliban, My own view is it's still a little bit hard to think about it as a single national unified entity. There's a lot of decentralization and, if you will, local factors. But I assume that whether it's out of a a lack of will or a lack of capability, one way or another, groups like Al Qaeda, other terrorist organizations, will make real inroads into uh, into Afghanistan. I think that's one of the price, part of the cost we will pay for what we for what we did in our departure.
0: Well, is it? Foolish to say that we could be more sanguine about uh, the Hydra, a number of the Hydra heads of ISIS having been cut off and decapitated; that they're certainly not as dangerous as they once were by any stretch.
1: These, but these aren't so much organizations as they are networks, and they come back. So yes, you can make progress, but particularly you know what we were talking about a few minutes ago: if you have world, if you have food crises. If you had climate change, you're going to have a lot of governments around the world that are simply not going to have the capacity to police what goes on within their own territory. You'll have a lot of people who are desperate. And I would think that's a context in which these groups will make something of a comeback, be it in Afghanistan or parts of uh, Africa and the Middle East.
0: Mayor Garland has gone over to try to bring some justice uh, with respect to Russia and Make the international court a place where war crimes will be tried. Uh, just how likely is this to take place and to what extent in your judgment?
1: Well, the United States has only limited standing, given our own views about the international criminal court. Uh, when it comes to you know what the Russians have done, I don't think that there can be any serious debate. They have committed war crimes and they continue to commit them on a daily, if not hourly uh, basis. This is a brutally pursued war against civilians. Uh, for the most part. Uh, that, that's all that's what war crimes. those are fundamental war crimes. I would simply say though, you know our ability to to hold Russia accountable is you know, we're not going to get at Putin or the the inner circle. Uh, and I'd also say as terrible as what they're doing, I would say the, my, my priority right now is to prevail in this war and to deal with war crimes uh, afterwards my my own sense is uh we want this war to stop we want to stop on terms that ukraine and ourselves can can live with so i would i would put you know uh, again the assumption that there's war crimes unfortunately that's that's the case and they're going to continue and the best thing we could do right now i'd say is try to figure out how to end the war sooner rather than later to limit Russia's scope to commit even more war crimes, and then afterwards, we can deal with questions of accountability.
0: Well, Putin's been bragging about his nuclear weapons and just what Mm -hmm. he's capable of doing. How capable is he of using them in your judgment, or is that even predictable?
1: It's not predictable. It's not clear that it's knowable, but every person I've talked with about, uh, about this, Michael, tells me that if Putin wanted to use nuclear weapons, he just might certainly on a limited basis be able to. And I, you know, the analogy I always use, and when I talk to real Russian experts, and I don't claim to be one, they agree with me, is that Nikita Khrushchev at the heart of the Cuban Missile Crisis in the early 60s had much less freedom of maneuver, much less control or power than Vladimir Putin does today. Vladimir Putin has systematically deinstitutionalized Russia. He's hollowed out. Its institutions, and as a result, hollowed out its controls and constraints. So my my concern is, if he wanted to use nuclear weapons, certainly on a limited basis, he might well be he might well be able to. We certainly can't assume that he would not, and that's one of the reasons that we do have to proceed with a bit of uh, with a bit of caution here.
0: Our guest is Richard Hans, head of the Council on Foreign Relations. I'm Michael Krasny, and a question from the UK, from Mansfield, from Dennis. And thank you for the question, Dennis. Dennis wants to know, we're shifting to another area of the world, how would the UK's threat to break international law in the new Northern Ireland Protocol Bill affect its standing beyond the EU?
1: Well, let me just say uh, I'm no fan of uh, Brexit. I thought it was, uh, to use a, a British football analogy, an own goal. Uh, <laughs> I never understood the, the rationale for it. And one of the casualties of it, I believe, ultimately could well be the United Kingdom. I believe this will increase centrifugal tendencies, certainly in uh, Scotland, as well as uh, Northern Ireland. I have strong views about Northern Ireland. I was the U.S. envoy to the Northern Ireland peace talks for three years. And then subsequently, I was uh, an international mediator invited in by the the parties that constitute the Northern Ireland uh, executive. So I've got strong views uh, about it. Britain uh, made certain... Uh, the United Kingdom made certain uh, commitments, and one was to honor the the Good Friday uh, Agreement. You cannot create then a de facto or de jure border between uh, the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland, and the idea that now the government wants to revisit that, I would say, is unacceptable. So, you know, so I don't I don't like what they're doing. You know, locally, I don't like what you know. I I don't like when governments go back on their international obligations. The the whole process of getting peace in Northern Ireland was a hard, you know, it was a, it was a hard fought effort. Uh, the Troubles claimed what three, you know, over three thousand lives over the course of those few few decades, and I believe that uh, you know what the what the government is doing is simply. Uh, unwise. Uh, I don't know where it's all going to lead. And there's interesting dynamics in Northern Ireland, some of which are brought about demographic. I think the irony of all this, Michael, is that Brexit may actually reinforce the push over time for Irish unification. uh, Because if you're a young person, whether you're Catholic, Protestant, or whatever, and you're in Northern Ireland, you want a future in Europe. And the only way then to have a future in Europe would be through Irish unification. So I, I, I believe one of the great ironies of what has happened here is that it may actually reinforce pressures over time, not immediately, but over time to to bring that about. But in the short run, the government should honor its, its, its obligations. But you, you can't, you know, more broadly on you know, on Brexit, you know, they promised economic gains, just the opposite. This has been an economic fiasco, and they promised... Uh, that they would you know, observe their commitments under the Good Friday Agreement, and now they want to go back on them. So I, I hold their, I hope their feet are held to the fire here.
0: You want to say something about Boris Johnson and all of this?
1: <laughs> I think I
0: just did. <laughs> That's what I thought. Uh, here's Eric from Washington, D.C. Eric wants to know, do you think a resurgent in Russia will push the EU towards greater unity and cooperation, or will it be a nail in the EU's coffin, especially as NATO follows its own mandate?
1: Good Question, I think the EU has taken on slightly greater uh, political character, so a greater sense of purpose. So I don't think it'll be a nail in in any coffin. Uh, I think more broadly, Europe has been galvanized by what's happened. uh, And it's manifested itself nationally, say some of the decisions we've seen in places like Germany, the decision of uh, Finland and Sweden to apply for NATO membership. I think it's galvanized NATO. I think it's galvanized the the EU and the EU is not spending most of its time thinking about Brexit anymore. It's 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 talking about both European economic issues as well as uh, Ukraine. But the EU is going to face other difficulties. The, the parliamentary elections in France uh, make France a much more complicated uh, member. And over time, the, some of the centrifugal tendencies in Europe are going to resurface. And I think a lot of them, to some extent, have been hidden because of the animosity towards Russia. So I think the the future of Europe is still, shall we say, uh, is still you know is still very much complicated.
0: Yeah, let's stay with that for a moment, because I was going to ask you about France in the recent election. Marie Le Pen gained a number of seats, a significant number of seats, but so did the far left. And uh, I was also thinking while you were talking about Sweden and Finland applying for NATO membership, that uh, it's being held up because of Erdogan and Turkey. And Erdogan you know, sees himself as a member in good standing of NATO, but to a great extent, uh, Erdogan has proved a bigger thorn than was assumed, largely because of his attitude toward the PKK, toward the Kurd, uh, what he considers the Kurdish terrorist, uh, I imagine. But this is a real impediment.
1: Well, two things. In terms of France, it in some ways reminds me a little bit of what's going on in here and some of the other developed democracies. There's a greater degree of political polarization. And when one looks at the new parliament, it's going to be very difficult for uh, mr macron for president macron to govern to put together a working parliamentary majority it may change from issue to issue it may be very difficult and you have a, a populism or nationalism on both the left and right which i believe will make it very hard to to uh to to govern there in terms of turkey uh turkey may technically be an ally in good standing but no one i know thinks of it as a, a partner in good standing it's a member of NATO, but it's a it's a bur in everybody's saddle, whatever image one wants to uh, to 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 use. And yeah, uh, for Erdogan, who's illiberal at home, who's you know, s- preoccupied with Kurdish nationalism, which he sees as the greatest threat to. Uh, Turkey. He got in bed for a while with the uh, Russians when he bought the uh, air defense system, so forth. He's a a difficult, difficult ally. I think in the case of if he holds up, if he continues to hold up Sweden and Finland, what I have said is that we should treat them as de facto members of NATO and let the Russians know that and let the Russians and if the United States wants, we could give a unilateral pledge to them and essentially let the Russians know that if they were to uh, use force against them, we would we would react as if they were uh, members of NATO.
0: What about the argument, particularly with Finland, that they have benefited to a greater degree by their position of neutrality? They haven't disturbed the bear.
1: That was true then. But this is a very different Russia. This is not as we talked about a few minutes ago. This is a very different Russia. This is not a collective leadership, institutionalized Soviet Union. This is a much more aggressive one man band. And as a result, we're not talking about in some ways the soviet union that sclerotic predictable uh country that we knew for seven or so decades or for four decades of of cold war this is a very dangerous russia that's you know we've seen it use force brutally in ukraine twice in georgia we've seen it in syria and the middle east so if you're finland you basically say what's worked for us in the past we can't assume it's going to work now we're going to take um we're willing to reconsider our trajectory, and I actually think that's you know understandable. I, I, you, know, you could add that it's one of the ironies of what Putin has done. That uh, what he's done is he's, he's he's brought about these kind of uh, sea changes in the in the outlook of several countries, and in the process, he's actually worsened Russia's strategic position. But there you have it.
0: This is Gray Matter, and our guest is Richard Haass, who is head of the Council on Foreign Relations. Since 2003. And uh, here's Frank Billings from Tucson, who says, as we watch the conflict in Ukraine, what should the U.S. and the world do today to avoid military conflict over Taiwan?
1: It's a good question. One is to do well in Ukraine. The worst possible lesson we could teach China is that aggression pays. So that would that would mean at a minimum continuing or even more amping up our military supply, military support of um, Ukraine and to impose ever more uh, draconian sanctions on Russia. And the big sanction that's sitting out there is obviously those dealing with natural gas. So one is to have a demonstration effect so when the Chinese have conversations about what are the lessons, what are the takeaways from the Ukraine crisis? I don't want anyone in Beijing to be able to say, well, the lesson we learned is you can get away with this. So that's one thing. Second of all, I've argued in our magazine, Foreign Affairs and elsewhere, that we ought to be explicit, uh, adopt a position of strategic clarity, saying we would go to, we would go to the defense of um, Taiwan if, if China ever uh, attacked it, acted coercively against it. We've got to build up our military capability in the the region. Taiwan itself has to do uh, a lot more, spend more on defense, uh, increase uh, national uh, service. Japan and other countries need to, to do more. We also need to look at our economic relations with China, and we need to, I think, restructure them so that if push ever came to shove, we would be in a position to sanction China rather than China be able to use economic leverage against us. So I think we've, we, we've got a long ways to go if we're going to deter a Chinese use of force against uh, Taiwan. And the reason I think this is so important, Michael, is I believe China is deadly serious about potentially doing uh, this conceivably well within the uh, next, de- next decade, and if they got away with it, it would be a true historical game changer. Every country in that part of the world would reconsider its security, and they'd either deter or defer to China, appease China, if they felt that we weren't reliable, or if they'd, among other things, develop nuclear weapons. Uh, the Japanese and others would reconsider their strategic posture. And this has been the most successful, most peaceful, for the most part, uh, economically successful part of the world for decades. And if we wanted to change that, the best way to, uh, or the worst way to change that, would be by allowing China to use force against Taiwan and, and succeed. So I think there's things we've got to do in Ukraine, vis-a-vis Ukraine and Russia, and there's things we've got to do, we've got to do locally. But when I look out over the next decade or so, which is Xi Jinping's likely tenure in China, I think this is uh, the risk of this happening is uh, is not negligible.
0: And what about the risk with respect to China in the South uh, China Seas? I mean, there was real danger there too, isn't there?
1: There's some. It's not the same that, yes, they've been militarizing the South China Seas. I think there we just continue to assert our navigational rights. And there's the danger of an incident more than anything. But that I'm less worried about because uh, it doesn't have the same psychological or nationalist uh, nature that Taiwan does, which really is the unfinished business of the Chinese Civil War. So I'm worried about the South China Sea, and that's why uh, I think it's important. We challenge Chinese claims. We have hotlines and all that to deal with incidents. But if you asked me to to choose the issue, which I think is the greatest potential to bring the United States and China to conflict, it would be Taiwan.
0: Again, my guess is Richard Haas And I'm wondering, what you're just to shift to another part of the world for the moment, uh, what your thoughts are about recent changes, at least shifts in Central American countries. Uh, we still have the dictatorships uh, throughout Central America, mm-hmm. Nicaragua, down into South America, Venezuela, and so forth, but also had uh, some interesting things occurring, at least from my perspective, uh, an election in Chile of someone who certainly deemed more to the left or for that matter, uh, more recently in Colombia, yeah. uh, with Petro, Gustavo Petro, uh, who is definitely more to the left. So are we seeing things changing to some degree, or how do you speculate?
1: The short answer is yes. And again, there's some parallels here, but what we're seeing, the center get weaker. And we're seeing extreme left or extreme right. In Brazil, you've had more on the right, but the coming election this fall in Brazil is between a rightist and a leftist. We just had that parallel in, in Colombia. You had the election, as you say, in Chile. We had Mexico a few years ago and the election of Lopez Obrador. So we're seeing populism come to the fore in Latin America. That always you know, happens traditionally in difficult uh, economic times. The interesting thing is the last few years have been you know, better economic times than usual, yet it, yet, yet, yet it's still uh, happen, but uh, no, it's worrisome. Latin America—it looked like it had escaped, in some ways, this pattern historically. It looked like democracies were getting more—what's the word—institutionalized. And we'll see. I think this is going to be a real test for democracy, for governance, in a lot of these uh, in a lot of these countries. But these kinds of wild swings from far left to far right, these kinds of choices, are not. Are, are not healthy and you know Colombia for example, you had the tremendous progress that was realized after the what more than a decade of a conflict internally and I, I hope that ground uh, isn't lost and uh, I, I hope the society doesn't come apart over this again. I'm not predicting that it will. but when you look at this part of the world, almost what I said about Africa, the biggest challenges in this in Latin America are not the kinds of challenges we deal with. In places like Europe or Asia, there's no great power presence. We're not worried about countries invading. I'm not worried about Brazil invading Argentina. That's not the issue. The question in this part of the world is governance. Can these countries, can these governments manage their economies? Can they provide security in every sense of the word for their people? Can you build social consensus to make difficult choices? And I worry about that for, for big parts of Latin America now.
0: What about concerns with respect to the Middle East? We're going to see uh, Benjamin Netanyahu come back to power now that uh, Israel has essentially, uh, well, the present uh, government, uh, which is a coalition government, has well, we've got another election coming up.
1: Indeed, we have another election coming up, and I expect it'll be a close-run thing. There's got to be election fatigue in uh, in Israel. No one ever gets a majority every single government in the history of the state of Israel has been a coalition so you'll have an election no party will get a majority and then you'll have uh, the bargaining that starts and whether you can cobble together and Benjamin Netanyahu will be in the middle of it so i you know, i can't at this point i can't give you odds but could he be the next prime minister of israel yes sir that's a real possibility
0: And let's talk about the Middle East for a while, uh, because uh, things have shifted there, too. You've got alignments now between Israel and Arab nations that never would have been anticipated. You've got the Saudis very concerned about Iran. The same is true, I think, uh, of Egypt and really throughout uh, a lot of the Middle East. uh, Seeing Iran uh, and Yemen, for example, what they're doing with proxies uh, in Lebanon and so forth, uh, the sands are shifting and they're shifting in ways that just a number of years ago never could have been predicted.
1: You're exactly like, you know, you and I are, uh, this is great. You know, gray is the word of the day. So you and I are of a, of a generation where so much of the middle East revolved around the fault line between Israel and the Arabs or Israel and the Palestinians. And that's been the case since 1948, obviously the 67 war and so forth. Then for a while you had the fault line revolving around Iraq And whether it was the Iran-Iraq war, the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait 30-plus years ago, uh, then the 2003 Iraq war. Well, now we're in another phase. And I would say the principal fault line of the region now is Iran. And you've got uh, Iran with its groups like Hezbollah, its influence in Syria, its influence in, in Lebanon, its influence to some extent in Iraq. But on the other side, you have some strange bedfellows. And you've got Saudi Arabia, you've got the UAE, you've got Bahrain, and yes, you've got Israel. And so that's where we are. This is now increasingly the fault line of the Middle East. And you know, hopes that the Iranian government would somehow fall or evolve are not going to happen. It's, a, it's, it's entrenched for the foreseeable future and then some. They've moved pretty close to the precipice of getting nuclear, uh, the prerequisites in place of uh, nuclear weapons. I don't hold out a lot of hope for diplomacy. So the question is now, what happens next? And do the Israelis and others continue to use force, targeted assassinations, uh, software and the rest to try to slow down the Iranian uh, nuclear program? There's one. Then what you do about the missile program, and then you still got groups like again Hezbollah, Hamas, and others. So when I look at this, it suggests to me that the Middle East is going to continue to be uh, unstable. It's going to continue to be turbulent, and I think the real, but the the slight difference now is this question of the Iranian nuclear program has probably come to a head, and that I understand the temptations to attack it, and those te- temptations may be irresistible. But Iran also has at its disposal lots of ways of responding, and I don't mean in the nuclear realm, but with, you know, shooting thousands of rockets into uh, Israel against densely populated civilian areas and so forth. So, you know, just when you thought the Middle East couldn't come to the fore again and get worse, the the potential is that it could.
0: And where do you see the Palestinians in all of this, particularly with respect to Abbas? Uh, Talk about grayness. uh, I mean... (laughs) In every
1: sense of the word, both age and uh, politically being uninspired. I don't think anything happens for now. Palestinians, the Palestinians in the West Bank have terrible leadership, unaccountable, no elections, and the rest. You've got the divisions in the Palestinian world between Gaza, where you have Hamas, and the uh, the West Bank. Then in Israel, you know this election, the new election, won't produce a government that is. Based upon anything to negotiate. Indeed, it would probably be based upon not negotiating these issues. These issues are simply too divisive. So uh, I don't see any movement uh, right now at all uh, going on. So I think this issue just stays frozen.
0: And what about the role of the Saudis? Uh, President Biden is going to be visiting Saudi Arabia, even though he essentially excoriated them, particularly for the Khashoggi assassination and for other Mm -hmm. things that... uh, Uh, At this point, in fact, uh, it seems like the leadership of Saudi Arabia really, if anything, has become closer uh, than ever to the United States because of the reliance now on oil uh, with what's going on in Ukraine, or at least the United States has become more dependent on the Saudis.
1: We're not dependent on the Saudis for our own energy situation, but obviously the world and U.S. prices are influenced by them. Look, the president, as a candidate... Candidate Biden talked about the Saudis being pariahs, the crown prince in particular, Uh, but uh, several things have come together that we simply, the administration was forced or is being forced to revisit it. One, as you say, is the whole energy situation. Second is the Iran nuclear program. Third uh, is the Saudis a few months ago introduced a uh, ceasefire into the war in, in Yemen from their side. You've got the possibility of a, some type of a normalization between Saudi Arabia and, and Israel. So for lots of reasons, the uh, president and the administration have come around to a more realistic point of view. We, you know, you, 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 there's no way you, you can ignore Saudi Arabia or should for the next 50 years, which could be conceivably the tenure of this crown prince when he becomes king uh, over the awful thing he did, which is not to say it wasn't awful or horrific, uh, approving or ordering uh, the assassination of uh, Mr. Khashoggi, of Jamal Khashoggi. um, But so the question is, what kind of reforms can you get going forward in Saudi Arabia? Not simply so it does anything like this doesn't remotely happen again, but there could be other positive reforms. Uh, and what other types of cooperation can you kindle vis-a-vis Iran, vis-a-vis Israel, what have you? So I think that's where we are. It's not a pure foreign policy, but foreign policy isn't pure. It's a, it's a realistic one. I think we've also got to take into account that the crown prince is uh, popular in Saudi Arabia. And again, he's likely to be there for for you know, decades to to come, so the question is, how do we how do we learn to work with them, flaws and all?
0: It's again kind of the divide between morality and pragmatism, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and I think a successful foreign policy has to have elements of both. But if you push me, uh, I would say pragmatism and interests have to take precedence over preferences. Sorry, but that's that's what I think we have to do.
0: Well, here's. Uh... Chris from Chris Clark from Phoenix, Arizona, who has a question about Pope Francis and the moral authority. He's in physical decline. His moral authority and credibility uh, in terms of mediating uh, is uh, perhaps in decline as well. Are there any other potential mediators on the horizon or is the mediation model obsolete?
1: Uh, the Pope has hurt himself in this crisis by some of his statements, which seem to me to be um, somewhat unfortunate in terms of how we characterize things. Uh, As someone who, I've been a mediator many times, Uh, (laughs) unsuccessful, I should add. I was the US envoy to the Cyprus negotiations, as I mentioned before, Northern Ireland. I was heavily involved in Middle East peace talks. I was at the Madrid Peace Conference. I've been involved with India and Pakistan. So I know something about mediation. My own view is that mediators are exaggerated in their significance. And that at most, they provide a missing, you know, the last couple of percent of a deal. But the first 95, the first 98 percent of the prerequisites for making a situation ripe, R-I-P-E, come from the, the situation on the ground or from the protagonists. And when the, in the case, say, of a Ukraine, in order for a mediator to be successful, it would not reflect the, the brilliance of the mediator. It would reflect the situation that both countries had concluded that continuing the war made no sense militarily uh, and that they would be better off accepting the sort of compromises they knew how, they knew they would have to accept than they would continuing the war. In that kind of a context, even a mediocre mediator could do okay. But absent that kind of a context, no matter how brilliant the mediator, he or she could not succeed. So uh, what really matters again is are the basics uh, politically and militarily and economically, rather than the, the skill set of the mediator.
0: And here's Joe Phillips from Murphy, North Carolina, who wants to know about Turkish president Erdogan welcoming the Saudi crown prince with full military honors today. Does this signal reinvestment of the UAE back into Turkey and in efforts to further expand their influence in the area? Yeah, That was
1: interesting. Uh, noticing also the, uh, the visit, this rapprochement, there'd been a lot of uh, disagreements over Syria and other places. So again, this might have something to do with Iran, uh, That and, and also a, you know, a sense that this is emerging as the greatest threat to the region. There also could be some economic uh, concerns, also some concerns about Russia. So I see this as, as in some ways emblematic of, the, of a new chapter that both Turkey and Saudi Arabia decided to... Uh, Turn the page, and you know what what exactly they will do together. I'm not sure, but uh, but again, it was uh, this was notable. Yes,
0: it's especially logical when you think that both Turkey and Saudi Arabia are Sunni nations, are led by Sunni Muslims, as opposed to Iran, which is a Shiite nation.
1: There is is that, and obviously uh, both are concerned about you know Iran's influence through Iraq. Syria and and Lebanon, and both Saudi Arabia and Turkey have their own ambitions in the region, shall we say. So I'm not sure at the end of the day if they're natural partners, but the, the old adage that the enemy of your enemy is your friend, there might be a little bit of that at work here, even if it's temporary.
0: Again, our guest is Richard Haas, and Richard Haas is the, since 2003. Again, I apologize for demoting you, uh, taking four <laughs> years away earlier in the introduction. Don't know how that happened, but I did. of uh, The right. head of the conference.
1: Much worse has been said about me, Mike.
0: Yeah, well, likewise. Uh, but let's, uh, let, we've got just a few minutes left, and I'm wondering um, what we can be sanguine about or what we can be hopeful about. And when we look at the global uh, conditions, uh, there's been a lot of emphasis this hour with you as there always is, on just the world being a sudden and uh, frightful place and full of peril. Um, We've got all these nuclear concerns and concerns with the economy and everything. What do you see on the brighter side? Where's the light?
1: Yeah, I am a little bit of Debbie Downer, and I apologize. Uh, Look, one is, you know, with COVID, I'd say the impact of technology there, the fact that these extraordinary vaccines came along, and even though millions of people died, think, you know, one, a lot of that wasn't uh, inevitable, but two, think about how much worse it could and would have been had it not been for these vaccines, which also strengthen us uh, against, uh, potentially against future uh, viral uh, outbreaks. I think that's an impressive uh, thing. Uh, my sense is, you know, the economic problems we're facing will be cyclical and temporary. Uh, so, you know, that in and of itself doesn't uh, work, that doesn't bother me particularly uh, much. On climate, again, there could be some technology, technological breakthroughs that could help us, whether it's things with batteries or a new generation of nuclear power plants, it comes down then to uh, political will. Uh, I like the fact that both in Europe and Asia, you're seeing alliances and partnerships be much more robust than they were only a year ago. I mean, if we had had this conversation six months or a year ago, Michael, would have been inconceivable to imagine the strengthening of NATO, Finland, and Sweden wanting to get in, the Germans doing what they're doing. So I think you know, Putin in that sense has done us, uh, amidst all the awfulness, has done us something of a uh, favor. Uh, so I, I see some good things uh, out there. History is always a, a competition or a balance between forces of order and disorder. So you're right. I'm more. I see more on the potentially on the negative side of the ledger. And a lot will hinge on what happens in Ukraine that we show, I think it's really important that we show that aggression doesn't pay, that militarily it can't succeed. Economically, Russia will pay a price. Uh, I think that would influence Chinese calculations not to use force against Taiwan. And, you know, somewhere in the next decade, you're going to have transitions probably in both Russia and China. And I'm hoping that the future leaders of those countries take a lesson from the pariah status that Mr. Putin has given Russia, from how China has created far more enemies on its borders than it used to have, uh, so I don't assume that the current disposition of China and Russia is somehow locked in permanently. So you know, we'll see how things we'll see how things uh, play out. There's very little about history go, going forward that's that's inevitable. So I actually think uh, there's no reason. You know, there's reasons to be concerned but not reasons to be immobilized or feel that uh, bad things are, are somehow baked into the cake.
0: Well, as a serious student of international relations, I've always believed that you really can't tell where things are going to go, uh, just like human affairs in general, even on the personal level, let alone the state and national levels. Things can occur that just surprise and completely take us uh kind of on the blind side, just a quick question. Since you mentioned Germany, there's been some criticism about the new leadership on the one hand, they seem to be extending more toward helping with Ukraine, but now they've come under some fire for not helping enough.
1: You're right. There's uh glass half full glass, half empty. They've come farther than I've ever thought they would have in a short amount of time, but they now seem overly concerned about not alienating Russia, not doing too much for Ukraine. The, uh, and not doing nearly enough on the energy front. They continue to close nuclear plants. They're now, you know, doing more with coal. I don't see them doing enough to roll back their dependence on natural gas. So yes, it's, it's, it's equal parts, uh, encouraging and disappointing what we're, what we're seeing.
0: Well, on that note, let me say, it's always a delight to talk to you, to get your wisdom and get your perspective, uh, which is broad and extraordinary in so many ways. And, uh, we will talk again. Always enjoy talking to you.
1: Thank you, sir. Good to see you in your, your, your new uh, vintage here uh, no, is, with, with
0: gray matter. It is a new vintage, and uh, we're very hopeful about it and excited about it. Richard Haass is head of the Council on Foreign Relations and has been since 2003. Conclude with per- perfect symmetry there from where <laughs> I began. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Richard.